officially the main teacher. Um, but no, I'm grateful for the uh, last five weeks uh, to be able to redirect my studies to other, to other studies and other areas in the church, and, and, and so thankful to have uh, uh, gifted brothers who can fill the pulpit, and, and I mean this, I, I, was, I was encouraged to be able to be like you all, most Sundays are, sitting here in the pew and get to hear the word ministered to my own soul. And, uh, and it's my prayer that as I pick up the baton and we pick up where we left off in Romans 12, uh, that I'll be able to minister to your soul and encourage your hearts this morning. Well, with that in mind, I want us to think about uh, the scripture in particular and the fact that the scriptures liken the Christian life to a race. Like any race, those who win must run with endurance. And to build up endurance, any runner knows this, they must have discipline. They must train. I I was talking with Eric Dunn one morning uh, at McDonald's, and we were talking, and he was using this as an analogy. You can't say, all right, tomorrow I'm going to run a marathon, so I'll start training today. Um, You can't do that. Well, neither can you do that with the Christian life and somehow believe that you're going to run well if you are not training. And so Jesus reminds us that this race is not merely a few laps around the track. No, when running this race, it's a dangerous race, and there are many casualties. Jesus tells us that those who run this race, you will be delivered up to tribulation. And you will be put to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my sake. And he says, and many, many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because of lawlessness, well, because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Knowing this, the Apostle Paul exhorted the church in Corinth, and and he said, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one wins the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things, and they do it to receive an imperishable wreath, that is, a a, a perishable wreath, a, a trophy that will fade away. But we run so as to win the imperishable prize. He says, so I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control. Get this, lest after preaching to others, I myself might be disqualified. But he has this notion that just because I'm a herald of the scriptures doesn't mean I don't have to run. I must cross that finish line. And so must we. And so the question that I want to put before us this morning is how do we keep ourselves from running aimlessly? How do we make sure that we're running the right race? How do we make sure we're not those who fall away? How do we prevent our love for God and love for others from growing cold? As the writer of Hebrews exhorts us, he says, Let us lay aside every weight 
and every sin which clings so closely and let us run the race with endurance that is set before us, looking to Jesus. That's how we run the race. We run the race with the prize before our eyes. And the prize is not a thing, it's a person. The prize is Christ. The way we keep ourselves from shipwrecking our faith, from being disqualified from the heavenly prize, and from being led astray is looking to Jesus. Before the joy set before him endured the cross. He's the founder and perfecter of our faith. It's running the race, focused with your eye on the prize. It's denying yourself and following Jesus. It's a life, brothers and sisters, devoted to him in worship. That's how we run. A race with a purpose. And true worship of Christ, get this, will be the very means by which we preserve our souls. Truly worshiping and savoring Christ and looking to Him and beholding His glory is the means by which He keeps us. And so this is the exhortation given to us in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2 this morning. And this passage sets the theme for us for the rest of our journey through the book of Romans, which I hopefully will get us through before Christmas, all right? But it sets the theme of where we're going. It's kind of the, the introduction to a new heart of the letter, which isn't new. It's been the heart all along, and I hope to show you this. But it sets the theme for the rest of the book where we are going to be instructed to be humble, where we're going to be Instructed to not think of ourselves, but think of others. To, as Paul will say, and I'm just summarizing the rest of the letter, to let love be genuine and abhor evil. To put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. To love one another as Christ has loved us. Not to please ourselves, but to seek to please our neighbor for his or her own good. To strive together in prayer to watch out for those who cause divisions, and to avoid those who will deceive, so that we may be wise in what is good and innocent to what is evil. That is what we're getting ready to go down. That's the course that we're getting ready to run. And so Romans 12 through 16, those chapters lay out the course of the Christian race and what it means to run looking to Jesus. That's what it's going to look like. And in the two verses that we're going to examine this morning, it looks like a life yielded to Christ in worship. Hopefully you're turned there. Romans is in the New Testament, if you're new with us this morning. It's right after Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and Romans. And we are in Romans chapter 12. And I invite you to follow along with me as I read. And if you don't have a copy of God's Word, the words will be up on the screen. Listen to the words of Paul as he summons us. Paul writes and he says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. 
by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This morning, brothers and sisters, I want to exhort us. I want to appeal to us. I want to plead with us to yield our entire lives in worship to Christ. Not a portion of your life, not just this next 40 minutes or this blocked out period of time from 10.30 to 12. No, what I hope this moment to be is just, hey, this is the water break by which we're getting replenished to go live. That we are about to give ourselves more holy than ever before in devotion to our Savior. And so I want us to yield our entire lives and worship to Christ so that we may, brothers and sisters, live discerningly to understand God's will. To put it another way, I want us to see that worship is our active response to God and our continual pursuit of knowing Him so that we may run the race with endurance. And what we're going to see here is that such worship is stimulated by the mercies of God. That's my first point. Worship is stimulated by God's mercies. Maybe you're here today and you're saying, I've got a cold heart. I couldn't sing a lick of what we just did. I'm unmoved. I've just plopped in here. How do I get to that point? I can't even give you this hour, let alone my life. Well, maybe you don't know Jesus. That might be the problem. But maybe you're here and you're like, I'm, my heart is growing cold. It's prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. How, how do I get to where many that I see here worshiping are? Well, this, my brothers and sisters, I hope will be an encouragement to you that God's mercies are meant to be the, the fire that burns within you. Paul's exhortation to worship is rooted here in the abundant mercies of God. In fact, this appeal to worship, as you see in verse 1, is grounded in the riches of God's power, His wisdom and kindness to save sinners. In fact, when he says here, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, he's just summarizing chapters 1 through 11. Now, you might not have experienced it as, oh, that was the mercies of God, but I hope you did. Chapters 1 through 11 was expounding the mercies of God toward you and me. Notice he, he uses mercies in the plural. He doesn't say, I appeal to you by the mercy of God, but the mercies. Why? Because they're multifaceted. They're unending. They're the great jewel that you can look at it from every angle and, and mesmerize, be mesmerized by it. Like the rays of the sun viewed through a prism, you get to see the fractured light that sustains your soul. And he is calling us to think upon the mercies of God. That's where all worship begins, brothers and sisters. When we think of him. And so Paul wants to stimulate our worship of God by drawing our minds and hearts to contemplate the treasure troves of God's mercies lavished on us. <clears throat> and these mercies are expressed in many ways 
through Romans 1 through 11. And I want to exhort us by these mercies. I want to cultivate. If you are sitting here today and you're saying, yeah, I'm not with you. I'm not worshiping. I haven't arrived yet. Well, may you arrive as you hear the mercies of God expounded to you. For those of us who are in Christ, and, and if, you've, if you've been familiar or been on this journey with Romans, you should, these things should remind you of the things or the journeys that we have already covered <clears throat> If you haven't been with us or you've forgotten, may they stir your soul. See, those who are in Christ, we're reminded in Romans, are those who are loved by God and called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from our Lord Jesus Christ. God's mercy is expressed in the gospel, which is the power of God to salvation to everyone who will believe. The riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience are meant to lead you and I to repentance. <clears throat> God put forth Christ as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith, to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. In his mercy, God forgives, brothers and sisters, our lawless deeds and, and covers our sins. And he does not count our trespasses against us. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God in Christ. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And by his mercy, therefore, we have received the spirit of adoptions as sons and daughters by whom we now cry, Abba, Father. It is by his mercy that God works all things together for the good, for those who are called according to his purpose, so that we might be conformed to the image of his Son. It is by his mercy that the Spirit of God has been given to us, through whom the love of God has been poured into your hearts. Added to all this, God's mercy has been shown toward us and that he has elected us. He has predestined us. He has called us. He has justified us. And he will glorify us. And on this basis, nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. As the merciful potter, he has fashioned us to be vessels for honorable use, vessels of mercy. By his mercy, God has not hardened us, but he has given us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts softened to receive the word of Christ. And though we were at one time disobedient to God, we have now received mercy. You see how Paul summarizes the entire first 11 chapters in I appeal to you by the mercies of God. Our worship, brothers and sisters, is stimulated as we reflect upon the mercies of God shown toward us. And Paul's appeal to worship is grounded in this very important principle. Worship arises from the depths of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. Did you hear that? That's verse 33 of chapter 11. Oh, the depths and the riches and the wisdom of the knowledge of God. Therefore, brothers, I appeal to you by the mercies of God. Give your life to him and worship. There's a clear direction by which we meet with our God and we respond to him. That's worship. Worship is the rightful response after you have met with God. And so if you want to truly worship, don't look within yourself. 
or seek to conjure up some sort of ecstatic experience, but cast your eyes uh, of the heart of your heart upon Jesus as revealed in his word. It's God's word, brothers and sisters, that fans aflame the cold coals of your heart. The reason some of you can't worship this morning is because you haven't been in his word. It's why we start the service off with a call to worship. And it comes from the scriptures. But that's just a little appetizer. An appetizer, if you want to call it that. There's far more to be explored. And who are we to have any excuse? The endless amounts of resources to get us into the scriptures. It's in the word that God's glory and power and majesty and love and mercy are, are manifested. And when you behold his glory, your heart, brothers and sisters, if you listen, if you have ears to hear and eyes to see, your heart will be quickened. It will be lit on fire. And you will say along with those disciples, did our hearts not burn within us when he opened up the word to us? Or when Peter was in conversation with Jesus and and the crowds had gone away and he turned to Peter and says, are you going to go as well? And he said, to whom shall we go? For you, you have the words of eternal life. Where else would I go? And you know that the word is your life. You get what it means that man does not live on bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So when you've experienced the mercy of Christ and the words of eternal life, worship has been expressed in your life. Worship is to be expressed in our lives. Therefore, Oak Park, I appeal to you by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. I appeal to you. Notice that when we comprehend the riches of God's mercy in saving us, it's then that we come to the realization that I must give my whole life. Many of us are are burdened by the scriptures and the commands and the instructions and the calls to mortify the flesh, to put to death the deeds of the flesh, to put on the Lord Jesus. It's because we don't know him. It's because we find his commands burdensome to us, but he says they are to be light. And the only way you make them light is when they are out of a motivation of love and thanksgiving. When they're out of a heart of worship, not of a heart of duty. Heart of duty will not get you close to the Savior. It will drive you away. It's a cultivated heart that loves Him. And this is how you get from point A to point B. This is how you get from I don't worship to I give my whole life to Him in worship. This is what Paul means when he says, present your bodies to God. He's referring to your whole person. He's not just saying your body, but not your mind, not your soul. No, he's just talking holistically here. As Jesus says it, uh, you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. This means that there is no sphere in your life that is not to be subjected to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Nothing. Not an activity, not a thought, not a a thing, not a person. There is no hidden crevices that worship does not touch. 
Present your bodies, your whole life to him. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Therefore, honor the Lord with your what? Bodies. Paul reminded us in Romans 6, but now that you have been set free from sin, that's where the mercies of God come, we were enslaved in our passions and our lusts to sin. Now we have been set free. The shackles have been broken by the blood of Christ, by his death and resurrection. You have been set free, he says, but you have become slaves of God. And the fruit you now get leads to sanctification and its end, its goal, the finish line, is eternal life. Do you realize you and I are slaves of God? And yet he's a good master, isn't he? He's precious. Those of us who truly know him, we find him, we're like children who run up to our, our, our daddies. And we, we get up into his lap and we cry, Abba, Father. Do you know your God like that? Is he your sweet, heavenly Father? Is he your loving master? Do you love to say, I'm his slave? Language that Paul uses in our text employs sacrificial language, right? Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. It, it recalls the Old Testament sacrificial system. That's why I had us read Leviticus 9. We're a bull, a ram, a goat, or lamb without blemish. A holy animal, you could say, was offered as a sacrifice on behalf of the sins of the people. The blood would be spilt over the altar covering the mercy seat making atonement for their sins. That is, covering their sins. The flesh of the animal would then be burned with its fragrance rising up to God. And when the people drew near to the tent of meeting, the glory of God would appear. Oak Park, the glory of the invisible God has appeared in the person of Jesus Christ. His Son, and so Paul says for us here in our text, notice the language. We are to be a living sacrifice. You aren't a bull, a goat, or a lamb. He's the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But now in light of that, the fact that we have had our life hidden with his, we are now those dead people who have been brought to life and we are living sacrifices. We don't die on the altar. We live because he died. But we do die to ourselves, offering our lives in sacrifice to him. And like the animal without blemish, so Christ has made us holy. His blood has covered us. He's the propitiation. He is the mercy seat which covers our sin. How blessed is the man of whom the Lord does not count his sin. That is you and me. We are holy now, so therefore we live holy lives unto him and like the smoke of the burnt offering our lives are to give off the sweet smelling fragrance which is pleasing to his nostrils it's not just an hour on sunday morning brothers and sisters present your bodies 
It's a living sacrifice. This wholesale giving of ourselves to God as sacrifice, Paul calls it our spiritual worship. At least that's how the, the ESV translates it. And I don't want us to be confused by that phrase, spiritual worship. The idea here is genuine right worship. I actually think the King James renders it well when it says reasonable service. The word service is cultic, priestly worship language. We're, we're the priesthood of believers. In Christ, we have access to God. We enter the holy places. In Christ's name, we can boldly proceed to the throne of grace. We can say, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Father, give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive others. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And he hears us. This is that word spiritual is a philosophical term describing what is truly rational. I don't usually do this, but I think it's helpful here. The word there is logikos. And I think it's helpful because you can hear logic in that, right? Logikos. Your logikos worship. That's what he's saying. Your spiritual worship, your logical worship. Now, I think when we hear spiritual and logical, we see them as two ends of different spectrums, don't you? You're like, oh, that doesn't make sense. It does in the biblical worldview, which is what we're going to be talking about. We need our minds renewed to what's true and what's right. We think spiritual is illogical, irrational. But the Bible says spiritual is rational, is reasonable, is logical. And so what Paul is doing is he's telling us in light of the mercies of God in Christ, we are to do what is logical. What is truly spiritual, and that is worship him. That's the sane thing to do, if you want to put it in more vernacular terms. This true worship is then set in contrast to the root sin, which is idolatry. The heart is an idol factory. And it comes pre-assembled when you're born. It's an idol factory. And salvation in Christ, Romans is telling us, is the solution to our sinful state described in Romans 1. So I just want you to listen. Listen as you keep 12, 1 and 2 in mind. Think about Romans 1. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became, now listen, futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened. That's verse 21. Verse 25. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Idolatry is false worship. It's the futility of the mind. It's the degradation of the human being. It turns us into ravenous animals. 
And Christ has come to redeem you from animal, futile thinking to make you conform to the image of the new Adam, a true human being who flourishes. You see the difference. We're being renewed to be who we are rightly to be. But now that we're in Christ, we, we don't present ourselves then to idolatry and the futility of our minds, but we are to present ourselves as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual slash reasonable worship. That's the argument being made here. So what does this yielding of ourselves in true worship look like then? That's verse 2. Worship, true worship, reasonable worship, brothers and sisters. The worship of which the Father seeks, John 4, is fixed, fixated with God's will. True worshipers, that is Christians, are fixated upon the will of God. In light of the mercies of God, which dive us into true worship, Paul says, verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Brothers and sisters, everybody on the face of the planet is a worshiper. Everybody's a worshiper. The only question is if you are a worshiper of idols or are you a worshiper of the true and living God. And there is no in-between. You are not neutral. If you're an unbeliever here with us, you're visiting, you are a worshiper of idols. You might say, I don't bow down to any idols. Yeah, you do, yourself. You think you are the center of the world. And I got news for you. So do all of us. We just realize we're wrong. And he has opened up our eyes to see the futility of that thinking. And he's shown us that he's the center of the world because he holds the world up by the words of his power. So what we see here in verse 2, is that true worship is active. It's not a passive thing. True worship is active. It's, it's fixated upon God, striving zealously to know Him. This is what my theological mentor says about this, Tom Schreiner. The mercies of God summon us to active effort. The energy of God's grace summons human beings not to passivity, but to exertion. But it is an exertion rooted in faith and energized by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's summoning us, God's grace, His mercies, Romans 1 through 11, all that theology, all that high thinking was renewing your mind, whether you realize what was going on or not, if you're a believer. It was renewing your mind so that you would respond actively in worship. Even if it's, I have no idea who you are, you're just awesome. I know you are the God who mercied me, the God who loved me, the God 
who sent his son to die for me. So why do we have to exert ourselves in pursuit of God's will? This is the first phrase of verse 2. Because if we're passive, this is what is happening to you and I. We are being conformed to this world. If you have your, your gears shifted in neutral, you're going backwards. You're being conformed after this world, this present evil age, this age which is devoted to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And it is pressing itself upon you and shaping you in ways that you are unaware of. Everything is impacting us. And so as we're running the race, I can't even see the course. It's so cluttered. And so he says, fix your eyes upon me. That's the default of the sinful heart, being conformed to the world. This is why the scriptures guard us from the sin of idleness. You notice that you're never tempted when you're hard at work, Right? When are you most tempted? When you got time on your hands, right? Well, the Lord's calling us to fill up your time with being fixated with me, and I'll deliver your soul. Battle rages, brothers and sisters, as we seek to set our minds upon Christ and be shaped by Him. That's where the battle is every day. I mean, I'm preparing for this sermon in my basement this morning. That's not the only time I prepared, but I'm coming back to it. But here's what I know. I've got two and a half hours before I get from my hidden desk to the sacred desk. And I know where my heart's going to go. It's going to wander. How much more between Sunday and Sunday? That's where the battle is. Do not be conformed to this world. I like how J.B. Phillips, old Bible teacher, translates or paraphrases verse 2. He says, do not let the world around you squeeze you into its mold, but let God remold your minds from within. Do you feel the squeeze of the world? You should. Be aware of what is acting upon you. It is squeezing you and molding us in ways that we are even unaware of. That's why we must trust the word by faith. Lord, I don't see this, but I'm trusting that what you say is true. By trusting what you say is true is the process by what, how he renews our mind. This is the transformational process of sanctification in our life. This is the means by which our lives, our wills become conformed to His. It's how He is moving us from one degree of glory to the next. Our minds, brothers and sisters, must be restored from the futility of sin. And he's in the process of doing that if you have trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And when our minds are renewed in Christ, our affections are going to be stirred for God and his glory. 
when we set our minds on things above and not things on this earth, oh, that's when the word of Christ dwells in us richly. And we respond in singing hymns and songs and spiritual songs where we'll, we'll submit to one another in love and children will obey their, their parents and, and employees will submit to their employers. It all flows from a renewal of the mind, a life of worship. And so Paul says this renewing of your mind, think rational, reasonable, spiritual worship. He says here at the end of verse 2, results in the discerning of the will of God. So many Christians want to know God's will, but they don't want to be renewed in their minds to have their will conform to His. I know that's a mouthful. But usually, when people come to us, it is not seeking the wisdom of God. It's just to let us know what they've already determined they're going to do. Oh, I've been praying about it. Oh, have you? Because the scripture says wisdom's found in abundance of counselors. So who in this church have you talked to about that? Well, it was just me and my wife. Yeah, that's not objective and helpful. That's foolish. Now, it might be the right decision. But that is, that is the tenor of our heart. I don't really want to know the will of God. I don't want to follow his means of discerning his will. I'm just content to do it my way, which is the futility of our minds. It's being conformed to the image of this world. I somehow have the wherewithal to make major life decisions apart from him. That's what we're doing. And so in reality, most of the time people say, I know God's will. It's really just a facade to justify whatever they've already decided they want to do. However, it's only through the renewal of your mind that you can test, he says, and approve and discern God's will to truly know what is good to truly know what is acceptable, to know what's perfect. And what he means by that is whole, complete. The idea of shalom. What is the whole life? What is being truly human? Only God knows that. How does this renewal of our mind occur? It comes through immersing yourself in the word of God, meditating on it and allowing the spirit of God to press the word into your life. So either the word of God is being pressed into your life or the present evil age is being pressed into your life. That's what verse 2 is talking about. And you know whether the word of God is being pressed into your life or not. And if that is a big fat no, then the world's being pressed into your life. I was reading Charles Spurgeon's sermon on uh, one of his many on worship. And he really gets to the heart of this verse here. Let me just read this to him. It's, it's punchy. Just buckle up, okay? Let me look at a man in the face who never reads the Bible, who does not want to know what is in it, who has no care about what God's word is. I see there a man that cannot worship God. If he says, oh, I'm sincere in my own way, sir, your own way? But that is the way which is sure way of rebellion. That is the sure way of rebellion. A servant does not have his own way, but his master's way. 
You are not a servant of God while you think that your will and your fancy are settled what God will have for you. Oh, how many people, how many men and women think they are living a life pleasing to God, but they know not the scriptures nor the power of God. I'll leave my spouse for another person. Oh, the Lord has just brought me my soulmate. That's foolishness. That's the evil one. Oh, I don't need the word. I don't need preaching. I don't need discipleship. I don't need people pressing my life. I am a self-feeder. You're a fool. What's God's ultimate will for your life? Do you know what that is? Could you say, this is what God's will is for my life? It's actually very simple. Now, it has multiple implications, but very simple. No matter what is occurring in your life, this is the will of God, 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, your sanctification. Is that what we're most concerned about? Your kingdom come, your will be done. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Not my will, Lord, but your will be done. Is that truly our heart? Is that truly our prayer? Brothers and sisters, he doesn't expect that you and I know everything in his word. It's impossible. It's eternal. But he does expect that like little children that we'd be quite willing to learn what is acceptable and pleasing to him. Father, may I know what's good in your eyes? I want to please you. I want to know what is good for me. For you, Daddy, you know what's best. That's the heart of a true worshiper. Paul says this in other places. Walk as children of light and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. To the church in Philippi, he says, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Why? So that you may approve what is excellent. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. That's the finish line. I'm praying, church. I'm praying for us. I'm praying for my own soul that we will not be conformed to this world but we will be transformed by the renewal of our mind, growing with all knowledge and all discernment so that we may truly know what God calls excellent. That we won't settle for what the world calls excellent. But we would we'd place our hope in that which is eternal, which is above and beyond all we could ask or think. You see that in verse 2? The renewal of your mind so that by testing, and that is the exertion, the working through life, seeking God's will, testing it by the word, running a marathon. You won't be able to run if you aren't living disciplined in the word. Testing that you may discern, learn what is the will of God, namely, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Do you see the sacrificial language of verse 1? 
acceptable, pleasing, that sweet-smelling fragrance. What is good correlates with what is holy, what is perfect, complete, your whole life. So, Oak Park, let me ask you, are you being conformed to this world? Or are you being renewed by your mind, being transformed? Are you seeking the will of God with your whole life so that you might be holy and acceptable to Him? And by that I mean, are you and I overwhelmed by the mercy of God, having tasted and seen that the Lord is good? And we say, I want more of that, please. If so, you'll be able to test every sphere of your life by what God says is good, acceptable, and perfect. You'll be able to test every decision that you make, every pleasure you pursue, every relationship you enter, every thought you entertain, and bring it into captive obedience to Christ. It's my prayer that this morning and every morning on Sunday, that as we're running the race, it is like us huddling up together and we are here getting our Gatorade punches in. And our souls are being refreshed by the Word of God so that now we go out and we run this week. And we come back next week because we're thirsty. I cannot live apart from the bread of life. Give me more so that I may have endurance. May that be with the Lord does in our life today and every day moving forward. Let's pray. Lord, give us renewed minds. Not minds that are cold, but minds that fan the flame of our heart. Oh, that we would taste and see that you are good. Oh, that we would meditate on the treasure troves of your mercy that are being lavished on us embarrassingly. May we not take them for granted, Lord. May we see them. May we get a glimpse of them. May we get a taste, a flicker of the light of the glory of Christ and that we would behold him. Our jaws would literally drop. And oh, how the things of this world will grow strangely dim. Lord, do that in our hearts. Transform us. Do not let the evil one take us. Keep us, protect us, until that day you say, well done, good and faithful servant. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.